Dr. Coons, can you define education? Education is the training of a human being in both spirit and body for some definite goal. The goal really could succinct, be that's a really succinct definition. Sorry, I'd jump in there. The, the goal, the goal could be extremely practical. So, you know, uh, this guy doesn't know how to run, you know, a lathe today, and over the next two days, I'm going to train him how to do that. It could be much broader than that. I want this person to obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ, so I will teach him Christian doctrine. But Nonetheless, I'm going to train all of him for some definite goal. So somewhere in there, education involves a higher and a lower, right? Or a, or yeah. a known mm-hmm. and an unknown? Yep. Or does it only involve outcomes? I guess is where I really want to go with that. <laughs> um, it involves a lot that is unknown because I'm training a person and not say like a piece of metal to behave in a certain way or to be a certain way or look a certain way. So the, the cloudiness, but also the, the excitement of education is that I'm dealing with people. It's not, let's say outcomes based or grounded because a goal is not exactly an outcome. An outcome presumes that assessment will be possible, especially in the case of Christian education, the, ultimate goal is not actually visible to the educator until eternal life, whether the educator is a parent or a pastor or a teacher. So it's not outcomes based in this, in the sense that that's used within, let's say the field, the modern field of education to say, do you know how to do this now? Do you know how to do that now? That can be really valuable, but I wouldn't say that education should be driven solely by outcomes because some outcomes I mean, outcomes are always worth pursuing, but they're not always visible or capable of being assessed by the educator or by anyone else at that time. So I think it's it's mistaken to think only in terms of outcomes. Yeah, it seems to me that if education can only involve what is seen as a result, which is why we test, right, right, then that that dramatically limits the ability of time to help you as an educator, right? right? Like, right, like you right. can't yep. let unseen things occur overnight in the kid's head and then build on them because everything right. has to be sort of like memorized now, right. which I think is, you know, I didn't plan to go this way, but my major criticism with the experience of American education as I had it and as I see it, and the reason I detached my family for, from it as soon as I could is because it teaches you to memorize and forget. It doesn't teach you to learn it teaches you to be very good at learning for a moment. You become adaptable at passing tests, at proving yourself yeah. to small bits, to yeah. having mini games that you will deal with. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder if that's not the actual intent of the education. Okay. <laughs> that that yeah, it it is. It's not the original intent of public schooling. So I mean, what we'll be doing this week is kind of taking the data and expanding upon it from last week, but also using it. And one of the ways to use it is to point out that. Public schooling was actually, I think, more pedagogically sound in the 19th century in emphasizing much, not many. So there's a certain number of spellers that you go through and then you're done. 
there's a certain number of primers, which are really readers that you go through and then you're done or, or whatever the case might be, right? And the point there is not that, you know, arithmetic and algebra and geometry and calculus, or at least pre-calc and trigonometry. And then you go and like have a family, <laughs> doesn't matter, right? The the big change that that we get and public schools are actually resistant to this largely in the beginning is that you get progressive education or progressive educational philosophy, especially propagated chiefly by a guy we've talked about before, John Dewey, and chiefly by the institution at which he teaches for a very long time, Teachers College of uh, eventually affiliated and, and now part of Columbia University in New York City. The, the reason that public school is initially oppositional to the methods of progressive education, which focuses not on content and the knowledge of content, like having a bunch of algorithms to do arithmetic quickly in your head uh, so that you can run a shop or, you know, measure your land and, and plan how you're going to plant, but that you have what are called critical thinking skills, or you know how to do math, not have a bunch of algorithms. This is sort of progressive education doesn't reach mathematics education in a big way until quote the new math. Um, which is being kind of redone and was redone in some of the reforms of Common Core. Public schools are initially, as both systems and teachers and the, the, the set of normal schools that both public systems and also like uh, church bodies like Concordia Teachers College um, in both River Forest, Illinois and Seward, Nebraska, they're, they're pretty, originally they're, they're really oppositional to progressive education because they understand their job as giving you certain capacities, right? And progressive education is really cloudy on specific capacities. You're supposed to get like skills, not like knowledge, like when did this battle occur? So there is a, there is a shift and in, in you, you talked about as like memorize and forget, but memorization when it's focused on certain things that come back in various ways can be extremely fruitful. True. What the way that the way that you were taught and the way that I was taught and the way that probably most people listening to this were taught was really for the sake of assessments. And those assessments were driven, they're, they're driven by skills. Think about how everything from the Iowa skill of uh, the Iowa test of basic skills all the way up to the SAT is governed. It's, it's within skill category areas verbal, quantitative, writing, writing about what doesn't matter, just writing. Okay. So you do get a massive philosophical shift, which eventually will affect also private schools. Okay. In the same way that they have teachers colleges, just like public schools, private schools will also eventually adopt progressive educational philosophy. And that's driven by a lot of things revolutionized by teachers college. Yeah. Cause like, like, Teaching people skill versus content, depending on what they're going to do, I mean, it kind of makes sense. But but teachers, right. teaching teachers, teaching as opposed to content, yep. that's another issue altogether. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. it, is. it yeah. totally is. And so whereas, you know, let's say that you're expected and sort of uh, remarkable what sometimes, you know, a 19th century teacher, whether private or public school, was expected to know content wise, right? You're going to shift from that to something that is becomes really its own academic discipline with subfields. 
And those subfields are really pioneered largely at Teachers College, but also at the University of Chicago. And then they'll be propagated originally through what are, are called or are still called lab schools, laboratory schools. That's where I like figure out how within this progressive scientific discipline of education, we're going to do things in a new or better way. At those institutions, you get the advent of things like standardized IQ testing, you get standardized assessment procedures, you get child psychology propagated in in a clear way that's going to affect how you do instruction. So this is not to say that everything about it, it's not like sort of, this was the origin of all the evil, you know, the maw of hell opened up in, you know, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But it is to say that public schooling is not originally intended to do what it now almost without exception does. And that is teach you to get through it. <laughs> yeah. Because right. if you don't have grades or standardized tests or anything like that, there's no way of getting through it. And if you can't get through it because you're just not capable or you don't want to, or your parents don't want to, you're also generally free, certainly in the beginning to just drop out. It's not a big deal. But like high school is there to teach you to get through high school. That's just right. I, I'm even madder now than I was. No, it's just like, <laughs> well, if good you, years, man, that was a good time. I gave up. Right. It, it was. And I, I think that you have to think about like, why do we have high school graduations? Right. So before there were preschool and kindergarten and elementary and middle school graduations, before there were those schools as separate things, there were high school graduations because high schools were not normal at all. And the spread of high of high schooling in the 20th century is the spread of the idea sometimes that you must go to school until a certain age. But even before that, that the attainment of certain specific like skills for, for a certain career path or in preparation for college, which, you know, prior to the 1960s, a, a vanishingly small percentage of Americans are going to college, but you could go to high school in order to prepare for that. The point of high school and the reason you would have a graduation was because it was a real academic achievement. It wasn't something everyone had to do and you wouldn't just be sort of like flunked through it. You had, you had to get through it. And the reason you were going there was by choice, similar to the way that people will still choose to go or not to go to college. And you had to go there if you wanted to get into certain things like maybe clerical work as opposed to a manual trade or something like that. Can the tragedy of the commons apply to this then? That like school works when it's not public? <laughs> no, it's not held in right. common? Yeah, uh, I say, this is, yeah, this is, this is uh, something that I thought in heretical ways from the first when I was in, when, uh, you know, going through public school. It's like, this would be really great if like maybe five of us out of this class of like 35 were here. Yeah. Huh. Because, because we want to be, and because, you know, I am interested, you know, darn it. I am interested in how Shakespeare is used within Charles Dickens, but nobody else is. And they shouldn't be expected to care. Like if they don't even know who William Shakespeare is, is it going to make any difference to their life? They're just going to ignore it later. Anyway, I think, <laughs> I think that that sort of acceptance of people's intellectual disinterest is something that previous generations were a lot more comfortable with. Also, even Yankees, because Horace Mann wasn't trying to make knowledge of Greek and Latin classics compulsory. Uh, public school was not intended, for instance, Again, to be what, what we would possible. now call. 
they knew it was not possible and and the technology is what's changed that they don't think it's not possible anymore i think i think that there because our conception of schooling is in terms of the depth and breadth of what a person is expected to know is so much shallower i think that you know the like for instance american history is going to communicate to you that america existed and there was slavery and it was really really horrible and we killed Indians and then there was the Holocaust. And I, I'm not actually being all that facetious in giving that little summary. That's it. If then that, it was the sixties, World War Two, and then the sixties. World War Two and, and Reagan, that was and then Obama. World War Two was good because they were trying to kill they were trying to like kill the, I think the, the alt right or something. When in the sixties we realized war was bad. In the eighties, <laughs> right. Reagan took us to, to like space again, sort of, with Star Wars and stuff. And then Obama stopped racism. And right. now it's the Republicans. We got to kill them all, right? Because racism. half of America is racist still, right. even though Obama got rid of it. Right. So, yeah, right. So, so that that little summary, if that's really all I need to communicate, then, like like we said last week, the the issue here is that public school shifts from a certain amount and kind of content that will create a vision of what it means to be American, to I think control of people who happen to live in America. And that's something really different from its original intention. So the ideology, I think, is vastly different from and, and really unrecognizable to, you know, a Yankee in the 1830s. But the system endures. And this is a common thing in American history, that if the U.S. Army in, you know, the Revolutionary War, um, as we record this, it's it's the birthday of the United States Army. If the U.S. Army, you know, exists in 1776 or 1775. It's not at all the same thing, even under the same title. And this is why power is so hard to analyze and why so much historical work has to be done in any facet of American life, because we we tend to keep things under the same names or under largely similar names. Good but names are we worth change stealing. what it means and what it's for. Good yeah. names are worth stealing. Yeah. You got me tripping on this idea of my high school the California high school that was really big, although it wasn't as big as some, I had, you know, a little over 2000 kids. We played against teams in our bracket that had 5,000 kids. And I thought that wow. was kind of unfair. They had a you know, bigger pool <laughs> to draw from and all that. But um, like thinking about that now, like, and trying to transport my head into some sort of like old world or first century Jerusalem temple where there's all this activity going around. You walk in, it's a little bit chaotic, but there's some people who really know, you kind of find your way into the inner rooms and eventually you kind of learn. And then, you know, you either like it or you don't, mm-hmm. you dig in more, or you don't, and you, and you kind of get through it and go on. And that is a really like to, to see that as like the, the catechetical tribal worship experience of Americana. I, I just think there's really a lot to mine out of that idea uh, to, to ponder it. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of the archetypes, which are then also repeated and propagated in media that people use for life are derived from high school, are derived from high school as a social or psychological experience, not as a certain amount of content. I mean, I... It's like nobody ever leaves it. Right. Correct. And their sense of life is determined by high school in the same sense that you can recognize a lot of the discussions surrounding the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq because they were prosecuted and, and voted for by largely boomer constituencies who had grown up on Westerns 
which is kind of a genre that's largely disappeared, they will use terms like good guys, bad guys, or black hats, white hats. So you can kind of tell from people's, even their political vocabulary, how formative watching Westerns on black and white TVs or going to high school was. And going to high school is a very powerful experience for most people because biologically it is a powerful time of life. Well, it's a time you should be coming of age. You're, you're, yeah, you're, you should be coming of age. What, what you are put, to, put into instead, especially for men, is a place where unless you are the captain of the football team, you don't really have rites of passage. Nope. Um, you're not really allowed to have a sense of brotherhood because women are always around you and they're usually telling you what to do. And, and that's, that is very different from early American schooling. We can talk about that later, maybe feminization of schooling. I don't know. I thought you sounded sexist. You said yeah. women tell you what well, to do. That's sexist, man. Well, you, yeah. You're so well, sexist well, to think that? What I'm saying is life is sexist, um, <laughs> but life can be suppressed, especially in boys, by putting them inside mechanisms of control at a time when the thing that they want most in the world is adventure. Yeah, and that's, that's going to be two different degrees in different boys, and it's going to be expressed differently. I'm not saying everybody would be like a star tight end if given the opportunity and we're just being suppressed by the national education association. No, no. But like, but like Sparta didn't do it this way either. You know, Sparta did not do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that what you're getting in the, in the history of public schooling is it's always about control to some extent. I mean, education is about control. I'm telling my child it's going to be better for you not to touch the hot stove. I'm controlling you for your good. One of the things that has come into my head regularly since you started teaching me in this show is a comparison of the present scenario of what I would call, you know, American debt slavery, uh, generally middle class being put into it through immigration, right? And the, the lower immigrants, if they work hard enough, they can join us in, in that debt slavery. Uh, oh, I did it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, do you remember what you just said, Adam? Your last thing you said? Yeah, is that education is always about control of some right, kind. Right, right, Okay, so what keeps coming into my head then is a comparison of that debt slavery with the story of the Exodus in in the Bible and the idea of Pharaoh realizing that there is a populace that is too strong and that in order to control this populace, he needs to limit the number of males that come of age because if they do, then they will be able to well, take Pharaoh's stuff. And so Pharaoh doesn't like that. And Mm -hmm. the more I look at, you know, your description of say the East coast, old world, old money, Americana gradually just taking over the whole country. The more it's like, wow, look at this. It's a lot like they just figured out they had to kill the baby boys because they didn't want to kill the baby boys. So they made them watch video games and put them on drugs and then like sit in the cubicle. Yeah. I, I would say that this is a, this is an example precisely of a change that doesn't appear as one because it's under another name is that the last gasp of Yankee political power as such by their own ethnic group, obviously in the United States is really in the 1920s with the immigration act in 1924 with Coolidge and Hoover's elections. The new deal is a change that then gets cemented by the addition of potentially any minority group, but first of all, American blacks, in the 1960s with the Great Society is the cementing of non-Anglo-Saxon groups into a coherent political unit in the Democratic Party. 
and it is going to be that party with fellow travelers from a Yankee group that is rapidly secularizing over the course of the 20th century and will provide every liberal Republican you've ever heard of, probably, and now lots of left-wing Democrats, into something that's going to use Yankee-constructed means like public schooling, but it's not going to have the same ends. So there's not going to be like an integrated vision of what it means to be American. Instead, there's going to be a narrative, especially about American history, which we've been bringing up a lot, but this will also affect other curricula. There's going to be a vision of equality of outcomes that will never actually be reached. And I don't want to accuse people of total political, political cynicism, all people, but I'm happy to accuse Lyndon Johnson of total political cynicism, that somehow every single child in Texas his home state or anywhere else in the country will end up with exactly the same, you know, reading level when he graduates high school and that all those high school degrees will be totally equivalent to each other in their worth. Plenty of people, probably Snake oil. you. Snake yeah. Oil. <laughs> yeah. Probably you went to a better high school in the quality of instruction than what I received in a r- tiny rural public school. Who knows? But the vision is no longer going to be, let's say, ideologically integrative. It will instead be infrastructurally integrated. So we will all go to schools on the basis of geographic proximity. Well, yeah, and the, the ideology will be in support of the infrastructure itself, won't yeah. it? Like the yeah, and so will that, become that the ideology. ideology will also change. It's why you and I received slightly different versions of American history. Mm-hmm. And people in high school right now in public school are receiving a much different version of American history because the content doesn't have to be the same, right? In the same sense that Barack Obama was saying things in 2008 that would get him, you know, uh, canceled now. I mean, by himself now. So the point is not ideological coherence. The point is infrastructure, infrastructural coherence and thus coherence of control by whoever administers that infrastructure, whoever's well, again, in charge of again, it. Again, so <laughs> guy's name is Biden, right? And he's like, seems New Englandish to me, although Delaware, I guess, doesn't technically count. But he's he's Irish Catholic. It's yeah, it's it, fine. It seems like they're still in charge. Like they've got everyone else thinking that they're coming up the ladder, but it's not really what's happening. But then where they're not in charge is where they're fighting with Twitter. And Twitter's like, well, we want to be in charge. And indeed, the school system seems to be largely in the middle of this battlefield. And on the ground here in America, in the middle, it seems yeah. like you know, no one's representing us again. This is a fight going on above board that's going to destroy yeah. our economy while we just have to sit here and watch it happen as bad entertainment. Yeah. And, and for that matter, that still feels a lot like Pharaoh saying there's too many young men. Let's, let's castrate them all lest they actually yeah. do something. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I... I, I don't I don't think that our current regime is actually, even though it uses tools, you know, built uh, first, you know, constructed and utilized in the 1860s in the case of getting a National Bureau of Education. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's actually continuous with what came before it. I do think I think that what through the New Deal and the Great Society, the Democratic Party figured out that the way to maintain political control and thus also control not so much over every aspect of life, right? But control over access to power and money. 
Okay. I say the Democratic Party figured out how to be a religion faster than the Republican Party did. They they figured out how to deal with the fact that America was and was by virtue, especially of the Immigration Act of 1965, going to become not just multi-ethnic white with hmm. some, with a black minority in some places, but multiracial in a way maybe unprecedented, certainly on a national scale ever, how to maintain power in that way. And they were able to extend that even to groups that are not defined by race. So gay rights, feminism, they're able to figure out how to manage that. So that, that, that used to be phrased as multiculturalism. It's now understood through intersectionality, probably largely because whites are less politically useful than they were in the 1990s. But the issue here is that they took over institutions that were constructed for one or another purpose and are now administering them for their own purposes. So I don't think that they have some sort of optimistic integrative vision that we're all going to enter public school as totally disparate and come out with some common understanding of, you know, American history that will be to everybody's benefit. I mean, I, I, I want to be clear that even if you like just completely despise what, you know, Oregon was trying to achieve with compulsory public education. Their idea was not that you were specifically evil in the sense that like white cisgender males are evil within the telling of American history now generally propagated in public school. You're not evil. You can, if you're not already, and even if you are, you need to be educated to be an American. And there, so there was something sort of basically optimistic you could invest in. It's why it was so seductive. It's why systems of religious schooling generally collapsed or are a shadow of what they used to be in the case of the Catholic or the Lutheran churches, because there was something appealing about it. That's very different from a public schooling system that is telling you there's something wrong with you and we will fix you. Okay. Or you will not be given any power potentially. Yeah. yeah. I, I still think like that, that something's wrong with you and we will fix you. I'm going to go back to your comment that how many, yeah. some people really believe that how mm -hmm. many at the top really believe that it's a religion at the bottom. Definitely the people believe it at the top. I still think it's, it's looting. They're just looting. They know what they're doing on some level, but more important than us debating that impossible bit of knowledge yeah. is seeing how we're still operating on a 19th century idea of then society that has been hijacked and that that society is the schooling system that we all participated in and our lives revolve yeah. around these things and that yeah. the Missouri Synod's belief in its own school system misplaced I might add um, is a major portion of of what it or we those who are here um, mm -hmm. really need to reckon with if we hope for God to take his hand of wrath off our church body I'll, you know Call me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not to not to tee up, uh, you know, a ball. You can't like, get more too, offensive than I just did. Too right? big and easy to yeah. hit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that there's a there's a lot in what you just said. So let me like take it one at Please. a time, as far as in my mind. One thing is there is no such thing as education in America unaffected by public schooling, and it's something we'll talk about next week with with private schooling. But it's something to be aware of. I think on a deep philosophical level that private schooling, homeschooling, unschooling are all going to be shaped by, unschooling is specifically shaped by former public school educators. Everything's going to be shaped by public school because it is the form of life that we have 
that is normal, not necessarily normative, but normal in the United States. And so the shape that that takes is going to affect things like private school enrollment, right? So if, if you have some resistance to some form of integration, racial integration in the South in the 1960s and 70s causes an explosion in private schools in the American South. Resistance to integration into wearing a mask causes an explosion in some places and cases in 2020 and 2021 in private schools throughout the United States. Anytime that you don't want to buy into the vision, whatever the vision is, you must educate in English, you must say this, you must do that, then there's going to be an explosion because you don't want to or can't, in good conscience, belong to the state church. So we're all affected by it. That's why I'm giving it two weeks and I'm only giving private school one week and homeschooling one week, even though I homeschool. I'm kind of personally more interested in homeschool, but public school is just vastly more important than anything else because whatever the statistics are on how many have especially entered into homeschooling in the past 15 months, public schooling is still 75 to 90%, depending on whom you believe of America, what, what's happening to American children on a daily basis. Yeah. It's, I mean, to the level where I'm like, dude, you're tilting at windmills. We can't even, why are we even trying to fight public school? Like you can't stop that one. Right. I'm, I'm not going to convince the people who I know are Christians who send yeah. the kids to public school not to, and I don't think this hour will have done it either. But so maybe to speak to that a little bit, like, yeah, because, because another part of what, what you, what you said earlier, that was, that was a huge thing. And I think was really worthwhile picking apart is that, Part of what I'm doing, anything that anytime that I'm talking about something in a historically long way, is giving you a sense of possibility that you wouldn't otherwise have. Public school, just because it's large, does not mean that it's inevitable. And that is going to be part of the story, especially of homeschooling, but even of private schooling, that you, that there have had there have been successful fights against the dominance of public school. But also that even if you support public schooling, it doesn't mean that it's impregnable. It, for instance, only spread nationwide because the North won the Civil War, which is not a foregone conclusion in 1861. So you're dealing with something that, like basically everything else that we talk about here, is historically contingent. And when I realize that something is contingent, then I also realize that it's potentially fragile. And if it's fragile and I don't like it, then if I push it off the shelf, it might actually break. So I wanna know how or why it's fragile. And one of the things that I think is extremely fragile about public schooling is that the experience that lots and lots and lots of people have of it is simply of being in a kind of kid prison. Yeah, right. And that is something that if, you know, let's say in the case of uh, Lutheran schools, if the if the kid in Lutheran school also feels like he's in kid prison, he can't then, wait to get out of church. Mm-hmm, then, then that is really going to affect, unless he's completely obedient. If your if your organization is voluntary, it's really going to affect the continuance of your organization. So, public school is not voluntary in the sense that I still have to pay for it, even if I don't don't go to it. But religion in America is voluntary. So if, if the sense that I give children is a sense of kid prison, Lutheran school is kid prison, then I've got a lot of problems. And that pertains to something that I mentioned earlier, and I want to tie it into what we're talking about now, is the feminization of American schooling, <laughs> which 
especially at lower grade levels, is almost complete, whether you're in private school or public school. It used to be a massive distinction, not so much between Catholic school, which was largely taught by religious sisters who were paid basically nothing and could be paid basically nothing because they were living largely communally. But it was a distinction between Lutheran schooling and public schooling. Public schooling was relatively quickly, and there was fretting about this in the 19th century, but by the end of the 19th century, it was sort of overcome. But if you look at older things like uh, the story of Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod Crane is a school master, okay? Men taught school, just like men were ministers. Often in both Lutheran schools and public schools, the teacher was the minister. So this was a distinction that was preserved for a very long time in Lutheran schools, down to both with pastors, but also people who were, quote, just teachers, trained teachers in, in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, were overwhelmingly male. And that was by intention. Because the understanding was that it was not just a like, you know, a woman cannot teach a 15-year-old boy how to do calculus. It wasn't that absurd. The insight, I think, was pretty pedagogically sound. That is, a man can actually, if he understands children, teach a five-year-old girl or a five-year-old boy. But he can also teach a 15-year-old boy and maintain control, like discipline, like salutary, do this, don't do that, because it's stupid and it's going to hurt you. The same way we would talk about football coaches, right? He could maintain salutary discipline over a 15-year-old boy in a way that a woman could not and in a way that would actually be destructive of the boy's will and spirit if control were maintained over him when he's 15 by a woman. So there was a lot of discussion in the early Lutheran schools, I'm saying maybe the first 75 years of the Missouri Synod, taken into the 1920s, roughly, about the fact that we have male teachers vastly predominantly, whereas public schools don't. Public school is a place where boys will be feminized. Obviously, that has changed. And it is really something to contemplate that, especially when you have a voluntary organization, which if you're schooling, but you're not public schooling in America, it's voluntary. And it probably is in service of some other voluntary organization, like a church or a Waldorf school wants you to end up like having Waldorf ideas about the world, like cosmically. That's pretty obscure, but you I don't know, remember Waldorf from the East Coast, though. You caught me there. I was like, oh, I yeah, remember that place. Yeah. Okay. Go look up Waldorf education. You know, it's just it's just kind of fun, even though it's totally nuts in some ways. If you're doing a voluntary form of schooling, private or home, you're doing something that's probably in service of something, some other goal, right? Because you're you're trying to opt out for some reason. So understand that if that is in any way crushing, the stakes are a lot higher for you than they are for public education because public education will still be tax supported even in, when and if it fails, maybe more because its existence <laughs> is secured through public political processes and public money. Yours is not. So if, you, if your schooling fails, lots of other things will also fail. I do remember a time sometime, I can't remember if this is Schwarzenegger's governorship or before, but I remember California printed, it was like a whole month of checks and IOUs. So, I mean, it can happen that the school runs out of money. It really can. And, and when the Fed yeah. you know, makes these dollars not, not work the way they will, it's a different place. Right. Lutheran schools and co-ed classrooms. Yeah. Always? Co-ed classrooms for 
for a parish school, yes, because Lutheran schools are like early American public schools in, in, in two chief ways. One is they're highly affected by the Prussian system of education, even down to the, the word that they use to describe themselves is a Volksschule, a, a people's school, meaning anyone can come to it. And so they're always co-ed. You learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. Above all other things, you learn Bible history and the catechism. When are you done? You're done. Optimally, you're done in eighth grade, but functionally you're done because Lutheran schools, even after the existence of the public school system, not just public schools, but the system I described, you're done whenever your parents and to some extent the congregation and the pastor agree that you're done. Like your goal but, really isn't to be there or go on to more school. Your goal is to like no. get your life going. Get your life going. And this is this is part of, I think, the the weight of confirmation in Lutheran culture, right? It doesn't really have any kind of firm biblical grounding as like a, a process at a specific age or in connection with Holy Communion. And there's a whole history of how they got rid of it at first and then mm -hmm. it was brought back in different places, different times. But the the weight within American Lutheran culture is that confirmation is actually the shape of the school year. Originally, Lutheran schools do not follow public schools. Public schools are governed by the agricultural year. Lutheran schools are governed by the church year because instruction will begin in the fall, but it will end by Holy Week in order for the eighth graders to be confirmed on Palm Sunday and receive their first Holy Communion during Holy Week. So the Lutheran school year isn't even the same thing as the public school year until generally until Lutheran schools, when and where they do, switch into English. And then also the teachers' colleges begin to be affected by the progressive educational philosophy that I referred to uh, yeah. earlier on. So yeah. we're, we're kind of running out of time. We're going to pick up more with private schooling next week. Um, yep. But it, I kind of want to do this now. Right? Maybe we'll do it again at the start of next week. I alluded to it a little bit before, but I really want you to take your shot at it. Because I could say some stuff and it'd just be kind of annoying probably. But like, <laughs> what's wrong with LCMS schools? I, I said God's yeah. against them and I kind of think he is. So I just kind of like your view of like, like yeah. everyone's trying to save them and they're not getting saved at the moment. Anyone watching yeah. that? You know? Yeah. I think one one thing is the feminization that I talked about earlier. I think that yeah. that is an enormous thing. And the failure of Lutherans to recognize that Questions about men and women are not merely, quote, legalistic questions, and they're not merely about, quote, control or authority in the sense of, like, you know, bureaucratic, authorized, like, you need to get a man to sign off on something. That the insight into male headship is an insight into how creation is built. And if you don't honor that, you will actually destroy certain things. So you, you will destroy the will and the desire to participate in church of young boys. And the problem there is that young boys will or won't lead families. And if they don't lead families, you will have many, many fewer families being propagated in the church. So you're actually, like I said, especially in a voluntary situation, you're actually shooting yourself, not just, not really just in the foot, but, but maybe in the head. So your chances of surviving a gunshot wound to the head are, are a lot smaller than surviving a, a shot in the foot. So the answer usually is something along the lines of, yeah, that's what mission is for. 
And that's why we're that's doing a, these schools too, is mission, by the way, to get people yeah, into church. Yeah, and, that, and the, that, is, that is a misunderstanding. <laughs> so and it's, it's, it's not why Lutherans or Catholics had the enormous school systems that they had. And next week I will be contrasting them with another group that was really resistant to public school originally, which were the Presbyterians. <laughs> they had schools because they had children, full stop. And the idea was, it's actually articulated really beautifully by a New England Yankee, Horace Bushnell, in a book called Christian Nurture. But it's based on a doctrine of infant baptism and an understanding that the child is actually a Christian, such that in Bushnell's words, he will never have known himself ever to have been otherwise. Hmm. And so you have schools because you have children, and it is your duty to indoctrinate your children as Christians specifically and only. And so you don't go to public school because why would you? And you have schools because homeschooling really is not on the table. And it's not because women are working outside the home. It's because they figure that someone who's focused on it can do it coherently and well for everybody. Whereas not everybody will be similarly gifted in doing it. And so it's, it's really a division of labor from the parents in which the school system has its origin. And I think that we lost sight of that too. We lost sight of the idea that we educate our children as Christians thoroughly and constantly because they are, because they don't stop being Christians during school hours. And we can't segregate their learning and their schooling from their education for eternal life. That was the insight. And I, I, I think that, I don't think that Lutheran schools necessarily lost sight of that, but certainly our churches and our and our people and our pastors did. I think that we, as in so many other realms of life, accepted the bargain of becoming more American um, and becoming more normal. And I completely understand and not even being sort of ethnically Lutheran, I, I get why that's attractive because I want to be normal too, as much as I can. The problem is that we traded a lot for that. And I think that we lost an, a lot in, in losing those things. But I would say, I would say feminization and also a sense that our children, that we make the sacrifices that we have to make when the state church is the public school, we have to sacrifice to have something else, whether it's home or private or whatever. We make those sacrifices for a really enormous long-term goal of eternal life and the good of the church long after we're dead. And, you know, that's a big ask for anybody at any time. But the reason that it was much more normal to say yes to that big ask earlier in history is because I think that we were extremely clear with everybody about what the goal was. And if the goal becomes more like church as a social club or just sort of propagating an ethnic phenomenon that, you know, you begin to exit as you speak a different language or grow up under different circumstances, that's going to get fuzzier and fuzzier, obviously. Yeah. And, and again, why we have this show is because it's not so clear where to where to even start drawing those lines. Yeah. Uh, how do you divide yourself from these things? We're already here. You know what you said a few moments ago about public schooling. There are those who would say, you know, they have no option. This is what they got. That's what they got to do now. Right. Even though they'd love to send their kids to a 18th century Lutheran school. Like they'd be yep. glad to do that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. But, but how do you do that? Right. The destruction of the will of boys. I think is a dead center bullseye target for what all our conversations have been about from the very yeah. beginning, the, the the history of power as it has expressed itself in our experience of it. Now I can't speak for what's going on in China right now. Right. Yeah. But, but for us, 
the 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 removal of the idea of aspiration to father that a boy should have no will but be glad to remain a boy and that in fact this is much better than growing up uh peter pan style this is this is deep and painful and and real it's very deep and i think to tie together as we as we close up here to tie together kind of those two threads is that the early missouri synod answer to where should i go to church i don't have a missouri synod church or where should I send my kids to school? I don't have a Missouri Senate school. Would be <laughs> start one. We'll huh, start that's one. Good too, Let's yeah. find somebody who starts one. And the reason that they could say that and the reason that things like that happened is because they had men that I think if turned loose in the modern church, Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod, whatever, if turned loose, they would be kicked out within months, years maybe, because of their ferocity and intensity. And not in sort of a, an angry way. I mean, go and read their stuff and see what they were actually like. But I find a different caliber of man whose will has not been broken by life and by his schooling. And when you have that kind of man, you only need maybe 10 or 20 of them to fundamentally alter an entire region. And in some cases, an entire church. You don't need a ton of them. You don't need to get everyone to think, you know, all the same stuff about the trail of tears, like public schooling attempts to do. And that what was being done was not necessarily trying to make everyone think all the same things about, uh, you know, every single thing. We have many caricatures about our forefathers. But that what they were doing was trying to create people who were loyal to the church And in the case of the education systems for pastors and teachers, which were not co-ed, the first one to be co-ed by pressure of circumstances, because not enough men were showing up, was the Teachers College in Nebraska. They were not co-ed, was to create a group of men who had more in common with each other than anyone else and would go anywhere and would start schools and start churches where they did not previously exist, which takes a certain willfulness which had not been broken by the system, that the system actually kind of encouraged it in some regards. They were, uh, for instance, the student bodies at the seminaries were self-governing in almost every way, unimaginable today. And so that idea of channeling the willfulness of young men into productive channels rather than just totally controlling it was, I think, a lot more pedagogically insightful than what often both public and private schools do, which is to break people, but especially boys. And that's why you're listening to A Brief History of Power 2. White guys, you know where and who we are, or you wouldn't be here.